to speak this evening. Hi, everybody. My name is Lee. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm the substitute speaker. <laughs> I'm a popular substitute speaker, I think. The, uh, several people were in Melbourne a few months ago when I was the substitute speaker. And Ed was there, as well as Cliff, that'll be here Saturday. I'm excited about this weekend. This is a powerful, uh, after tonight, we'll have a powerful weekend. We're going <laughs> to, with Ed doing the steps, which is just going to be fantastic, I can't wait to sit through that tomorrow. And then Dick, who's speaking tomorrow night, is a really good friend of mine, and he is wonderful. He's the sitting, sitting delegate for Georgia now, but he's been a great AA for a long time. And then, of course, Cliff's coming with his daughter, a kitty, so that'll be just wonderful. I've, and Jim is here. I've never heard Jim, and I'm excited about that. I, I'm always happy to hear someone I haven't heard before. And then I think Ed will be sharing again Sunday morning, even though the program does not note that. That's the first mistake Fred has ever made. <laughs> so anyway, we were all there to see it. Uh, my sobriety date is November 20, 1984. And Alcoholics Anonymous is hands down, it is the best thing that has ever happened to me in my whole life. And every day I can wake up and I can say, God, I want to be sober today. I want to be. And I'm so happy that I have a way that I can be sober today. How many people, just curiosity, and this would help me. Is there anyone here that is, you'd be helping me. Is there anyone here that's under a year, that has under a year of sobriety? Oh, a bunch of people. Good, wonderful. We're glad you're here. Thank you. That really helps me because uh, I'm, I, I'm strengthened by, the, by knowing that you're there because uh, that makes me feel like I might have something to, to say tonight to benefit someone. Uh, the, uh, my home group is the Central Group, downtown Orlando on the highway of co corner of uh, Highway 50 and Broadway. We have 51 meetings a week. Uh, there's not, it's not uncommon that three meetings are going on at one time, so we count those as separate meetings. But uh, it's, the Central Group was the first group of Alcoholics Anonymous in the Orlando area. And a guy from Daytona and a guy from Jacksonville that had already started meetings came over and helped David Andrews get that meeting started. So or, Daytona already had one going. But the meeting started in April of 1945. Prior to that, uh, uh, David was working with alcoholics in the community. Uh, he'd gone to a doctor who said he couldn't help him. And the doctor handed him the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have one up here with me. But uh, it's blue if you haven't seen it, and I'm sure there's some around. <laughs> some of you newer guys, you might want to get one of those. I'll tell you what, I got a guy I just started working with. He got out of jail a month, oh, this guy got out of jail within the last three weeks, probably two weeks. He, had, he messed up once while he got out. But he had told me, he'd just gotten a job, and he, he called me, he calls me at 7 o'clock every morning. And... Uh, he told me, I've saved enough money to get a big book, and I didn't know he didn't have one. And my daughter had won, she's six years old, she won the big book at the raffle at the picnic last Sunday. And I said, my daughter's got you a big book, you know. <laughs> so I gave him that big book. And, and what, how thrilling, you know, that he can, that I know that, you know, like, is that odd or is that God? You know, my daughter wins the big book, so I give it to this guy who can save us $8, you know, and do something else with it. 
but uh, uh, I met him a week ago, and he's in the second column of the four-step. So, uh, you know, that's how we like to do it anyway. The, uh, I got another guy that's in the second column, too. He's a very, you know, one good thing about our meeting meeting on Highway 50, it's the eastern end of Highway 50 is Titusville. And believe it or not, a few years ago, we used to get guys that would show up, you know, that were real rocket scientists, you know. <laughs> I mean, you've always heard that term, you know, like this guy's he thinks he's a rocket scientist. We would have guys that would come that were rocket scientists, you know, because they couldn't go to meetings in their community, of course, because someone might find out they're trying to help themselves, <laughs> something like that. But uh, you can be too smart for this thing. I was too smart for Alcoholics Anonymous my first couple of attempts. But uh, I, uh, I. Uh, this is a beautiful place to have a conference. It's uh, right here on the ocean. I love this room. I attended a conference here in the year 2000, and uh, we did the steps with the windows with shades open, and it was just wonderful watching, look, looking at, glancing out at that as the person was leading us through the steps. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be great. My earliest memories in life were laying in bed at night having imaginary conversations with another kid at school. Uh, I would practice these conversations in an effort to try to go to school the next day and have a, what I perceive other people doing, you know, something normal, like having an exchange of words with someone else. I was, uh, the book talks about uh, having the problem of self-centeredness. I, uh, I had a, a, a self-obsession from, I guess I was born with one. I don't ever remember not being, just thinking of me and concerned with me and worrying about me and how, what other people thought about me. And of course they're thinking about me and I wonder how they see me and I'd better be careful what I do because they might see me in a way I don't want them to see me. And, God, I always, I've always been that way. I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't, didn't feel less inferior to or fearful of everything and everybody around me. And as a result of that self-centeredness, uh, I was alone. I was isolated. It isolated. I was fearful, and I was uncomfortable, and I was frustrated. I've always been that way. I didn't need a drink of alcohol to become self-centered, you know. Uh, later, I found out that alcohol helped that, you know. And I was, you know, I can't believe I, I, it was 50, I was 15 years old before I discovered that because I needed to drink a long time before that. But I, uh, you know, I would always see some kid at school that just looked perfect. I mean, he just looked, I mean, he, and he, he did the right things. And he, he said the right things and he made good grades and the teachers liked him and he always dressed nice and usually had blonde hair. And I just hate this guy. And I'd, uh, when I was in junior high, in an effort to try to fit in with others, I, would, I played sports. I played football, basketball, I ran track, I played baseball, uh, basketball and baseball and, and uh, trying to fit in with others, trying to fit in with the group. And I made some accomplishments at some of these sporting activities. I came in third place in a 440-yard dash in a state event and fourth place in a 20-mile marathon. I lettered in basketball and football. I always got to start. I played both sides. But despite these accomplishments, it was not sufficient for me to overcome this self-centeredness. It did not meet that need that I had. And there was always some kid around that was perfect. He looked, uh, did the right things, dressed sharp, made good grades. The girls all liked him. The teachers loved him. Had blonde hair. <laughs> I just wanted to kill him. I saw the perfect picture of the self-centeredness of the alcoholic while watching the Discovery Channel one day in the African dung beetle. And what this beetle does, he'll climb up on a big pile of dung 
and stand on his front legs and with his back legs start pushing a little ball of it and rolling it. And as he rolls it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And when it gets so big that he cannot move it any longer, he climbs to the top of it, bores a little hole down into the middle of it, climbs down inside of that thing and lives there. I saw that, I said, my God, that looks just like an alcoholic. <laughs> my whole life is crap. You know, I've always been that way. I didn't need a drink of alcohol to be like that. I needed a drink to get out of that. My sponsor says that all my resentments result from not getting my will in the past, that all my anger and depression today come as a result of not getting my will in the present, and that all my fear today is my concern that I'm not going to get my will in the future. I've always been that way, you know. And when I was about 15 years old, I blamed my parents and I ran away from home. It's their fault, you know. And uh, believe me, they weren't as bad as I thought they were. And uh, I ended up living with my grandparents, and thank God for them. But in the community that we lived in, there was a little girl. I was 15. I was interested in girls. And there was a little girl that I was just nuts about. And I would peep through the windows and watch her, you know. She, she was two years older than me and had a car. She was a cheerleader. And she would get out of that car with those pom-poms and run inside the house. And I'd go, wow, you know. Man, she's so good looking. And woo, and I'm going to talk to her. I'm going to tell her how I feel. And, and I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to have a relationship with her. And, and, uh, and maybe she likes me too. And who knows, you know. And we'd be at school. I'd be talking to a buddy of mine in the classroom. And she would walk in the classroom. And she, I could, by the corner of my eye, I could kind of see her arm, you know. I could see her hair. I could smell her. I just run out the door. I couldn't stand to be in her presence, you know. I, she might be, she might know I like her, you know. We'd be after the ball games. We'd have a dance in the gym, and I'd see her at the dance, and I'd say, "Tonight's the night. I'm going to ask her to dance. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to look into her beautiful eyes. I'm going to, I'm going to tell her I love her. I'm going to kiss her, and we're going to walk outside, you know. And maybe she'll love me too, and and uh, maybe she'll she'll we'll walk under the stars, and maybe under the bleachers, you know, and. And uh, that song would end, and I'd say, well, maybe after the next song, you know. And the next song would end, I'd say, well, maybe after the next one. And then some guy with blonde hair would go over there and ask her to dance. <laughs> Screw the whole thing up for me. Uh, I'd still be that way today, except one day when my grandparents were gone, a buddy of mine came over with two bottles of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. And I drank one bottle, listen to this. I drank one bottle and he drank the other one. And in 10 minutes, I mean, I was, up on, I was up on the roof of my grandparents' house screaming out my declaration of love, you know, for this girl. <laughs> All that fear was gone. I mean, I was, you know, I love you, I love you, you know. And you make the sunshine, you make the stars come out. And she came outside. And her parents came outside. <laughs> Some of the neighbors came outside, you know, but I didn't care, you know, I didn't care, you know, I love you and I'm going to make you so happy and we're going to be together, you know, and she just buried her face in her hands like this. And I knew instantly that she wanted me. You know? <laughs> Alcohol did for me that what I could never do for myself from the very, I mean, the first time I drank it, you know, it was, it's a cure. And uh, I made a point to drink alcohol every opportunity I had after that. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, I, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof, omnipotent, all that fear, whew, gone. I, could, I was free. I could be who I wanted to be. And, and, uh, and I loved to drink. I drank a lot, and I thought it was a compliment. It wasn't very long at all. People would come to me and say, Lee, 
you sure do drink a lot. And I'd say, oh, thank you, you know. And uh, we, you could get a case of Boone's Farm for $7.20, and we would get one of those. We, my buddies and I would pull our lunch money. You could get one of those, and we'd get one of those on the way to school. And why wait until evening to feel so good? You know, we start drinking on that. It never bothered me from the very beginning to drink first thing in the morning. I can't explain that. But it didn't. And within three weeks of my first drink, I remember sitting at the dairy treat. And my buddies were all out of the car, and I was sitting in the back seat with three quarts of Budweiser, and I was completely content. I felt like I was surrounded with friends and people that loved me, you know? And I was sitting back there drinking. And I can't explain that. I don't know why immediately I started having, you know, dry, that alcohol became so important to me. But it just did so much for me. It really did. And I don't think that's the case with everybody. I don't think everybody just goes, whoo, just turns so fast as I, you know. Certainly I was one of the sicker quickers. But uh, there's a couple different kinds of people here. You know, one kind, you know, alcohol is good to you. But you go on and get an education or maybe get involved with a trade or in some career and go through your life, meet someone, you know, get married, have a couple of kids, get a home. You're going through you know, going forward with your life and building a life together with someone, and then you cross some invisible line, maybe. And the book says, we have lost control. He has lost control. And uh, someone like that could hopefully, want, after having lo lost control, can come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And maybe they've lost their home or lost their family. And if we do the things that we're supposed to do here, we may, may be able to have our lives restored to us and have our homes back or our families back or something like that, you know. Alcoholism never cost me anything. Because of alcoholism, I never got anything. I didn't even get started in life. I mean, I was just, I was adding alcohol to my body. When I was 15, it was like throwing a match in a bucket of gasoline, just whoosh, just like that. And I immediately, you know, I can look back today and I, I identify with, Everything the book Alcoholics Anonymous says about having completely lost control. From, I mean, I was 15 years old. And let me tell you this. You don't, I didn't have a ready bank account when I was 15 years old. And the guys I hung out with, they wanted to drink the way I wanted to drink. And we, you know, we just wanted some money, and we began stealing. And uh, I can't explain that. Nobody in my family lived the way that I started living. The men in my family, I mean, my uncle was chief of police. My, my cousin was a sh uh, the sergeant at the you know, police department, firemen, you know, postal workers, a lot of potential for trouble there, you know. <laughs> Never happened. But I immediately started living in a way that was contrary to every example I had in my life. And uh, when I first began stealing, it bothered me, but I learned to accept it. And, and a little later, I learned to just love it. And I wanted to steal something from everybody, you know. And I really tried to. When I was 16 years old, I was in juvenile court. My grandfather said, oh, my God, we've got to help him. When I was 17 years old, I was in civil court. My grandfather said, oh, my God, what will the neighbors think? When I was 18 years old, I would walk down the road where my grandparents lived. My grandfather would see me and scream to my grandmother, oh, my God, he's coming back. You know, and he would run in and grab his tools and his guns and start locking up those and hiding those. My grandmother would grab her purse and her jewelry. By the time I would hit the door, She'd be clutching her purse to her like this. My grandfather would be standing with his arm over the portable television set, you know. And that was the last place I would ever go. I would go there when I was just sick, tired, dirty, no place left to go. But I knew that my grandmother would feed me. I could try to regroup, you know. And I'd sit on the couch with my grandmother and we'd talk. And I would feel real bad, you know. I would feel bad. You know, nobody 
did the things that I was doing. I was it. I was the only example they had of bad behavior in my family. My cousins were doing great. And I would, I'd feel bad, and I'd say, Grandma, that's it. You're right. I'm through. With, it's those guys I'm hanging out with. It's their drinkings what's getting me drunk. And I'm through with those guys. And I would mean business. And the first day would be okay, you know. Second day would be okay. That third day I'd be pacing the floor back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Walk outside, walk around the house ten times, come back in. My grandmother would say, Lee, can I fix you a sandwich? Would you like something to eat? I'd say, get off my back, you know. Stop watching me. You're smothering me. You're driving me crazy. How do you ever expect me to have anything or go anywhere with my life with the way you treat me? And I'd just, boom, blow out the door, you know. And I didn't know that I was headed straight to a drink of alcohol, but I would find alcohol. Alcohol was at the end of every journey that I went on, I guess, and, and, and I'd have peace and ease and comfort, you know, one more time. And I knew nothing about alcoholism. No one in my family knew anything about alcoholism, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I thank God for the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I do. Because uh, I know what's wrong with me today. I had no idea. I had no idea. I knew nothing about an allergy or something like that, that once I would start drinking that I would develop an unquenchable thirst for alcohol and that I could not determine how much alcohol I was going to drink once I started, that the first one was going to send me on this trip and I don't know where, you know. I mean, no one in my family knew that. No one I knew knew that, you know. And no one knew that when I wasn't drinking, I was just as alcoholic. You know, I didn't know it. I didn't know that my mind was working against me, that I had a peculiar mental twist, that I had this mind that just, you know, I remember I'd, be, I'd wake up and I'd hear my grandmother out mowing the grass instead of me, you know. Lee, when are you going to mow the grass? When are you going to mow the grass? When are you going to mow the grass? I'd wake up to that lawnmower running, and I'd think, why is she doing this to me? You know, embarrassing me in front of the whole neighborhood, you know. But nothing would have gotten me up and out there to mow that grass. And I can't explain that. I don't know why. I don't know why I, I could feel, I lay there and feel horrible about myself and, uh, and not be able to get up at the same time and have the initiative to go out and do the very thing that I'm supposed to do that would take away that feeling that I had about myself. I don't know why. But I believe it's something to do with my alcoholism. And when I wasn't drinking, you know, the doctor's opinion says we're irritable, restless, and discontent. You know, and I get the little doctor, he's not alcoholic. Little Dr. Silkworth, he's watching us and looking, hmm, observing. Ooh, irritable. Ooh, restless, you know. Ooh, discontent. You know, in my mind, it's I hate my life. I hate you. Why don't, why don't people leave me alone? Why is everybody messing with me? Why can't I get ahead in life? Why can't anything happen good for me? Why can't, life, why can't things just settle down and be normal in my life? Why can't I hold down a job? Why can't I have a car like that guy? Why, doesn't, why don't any of the girls give me any attention? You know, what's wrong with me? And drinking helps that. You know, I could drink some alcohol and I'm going, what was I so upset about a few minutes ago, you know? <laughs> you know, come on, baby, let's dance, you know? I didn't have any of this information, but, uh, you know, alcoholism is a progressive illness. And of course, when I was 19 years old, I caught my first prison bit, and I wasn't ready. And I didn't have anybody to go to in my family and say, well, give me a little insight on what I can expect when I get down to this place, because there wasn't anybody. And I found myself in a bad situation, you know. I wound up on a compound with 2,500 men, 900 of whom were never going to get out. 
You know, and I, I really thought I was pretty tough. I really did. And I was 19 years old. You know, I look, I look today at a 19-year-old young man. I think, my God, I ended up in that snake pit at that, that guy's age. I can't believe it. I can't believe I came out as good as I did. I cannot believe it. But I learned a lot of stuff that I believe I could have lived the rest of my life and never learned. I, and uh, I carried that stuff with me until I can, and, 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 and spent some time in Alcoholics Anonymous still trying to overcome some of the stuff that I knew was real and, and knew was true that I learned down there to try to survive. The, uh, but the day I got out, I was filled with joy, you know. I, uh, my grandparents came to pick me up, and I think I was happy to get out. I didn't know that I was going to get out. I, I didn't know that I was going to live to get through out and out of that place. The, uh, and we were driving down the old highway, and I was filled with joy. I was happy. I, I mean, I'm going to put it all behind me. I've got six uncles. I can get a job. There's people that, that can help me. They'll help me, you know, and I know I've got a chance. We were driving down the old highway, and I remember looking down and seeing that white and yellow stripe in the middle of the road. I remember thinking, what is that there for? I know that stripe, those, I know those mean something. There's some meaning to that. And I couldn't remember what the stripes down the middle of the road represented. I didn't know that when you're incarcerated for lengthy periods that you forget things, simple things, like uh, how to use the telephone or how to eat with a fork and a knife, things like that. And one thing after another like that was happening to me. And my second day out, I hooked up with a pint bottle of Jose Cuervo. Two weeks later, I was with the same guys doing the same old things. And two months later, I was back in again. And you can take the next 12 years of my life and just stick them in the garbage can because I was in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out. Every time I got out of jail, I thought I was free. Every time I got out, I knew I'd never go back. I knew I'd never have to ever have that experience again. But I'd get out and I'd take a drink, and I was absolutely clueless. I did not know that when I took that drink, that I had just signed up to that same madness over and over and over again. And alcohol, that first, that drink always looked good. It always looked like something that could help. And I, I'd say, alcohol wasn't a problem to me anyway. Alcohol does help. It helps me keep going. It helped me pull together another day. Help me forget, you know. And, uh, of course, I, you know, that's how I spent my life, you know, prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. And just to move ahead a little bit, I was in, it was in 1984, I was in the Seminole County Jail here in uh, Central Florida, and I was going back to prison again. And uh, I had, uh, you know, nothing improved in my life. I, uh, I moved all over the United States prior to that, and every time I went somewhere, I thought it would be better. I went to Michigan, I went to Texas, I went to New York, I went to Oklahoma. First couple, couple of times I moved, I knew it was going to get better. I knew it'd be better in Michigan. You know, God, of course, he's going to be better in Michigan. You know, happiness is Arkansas in the rearview mirror. You know? <laughs> God, man. The, uh, when I came down here to Florida, I knew it wasn't going to be any better. I just had to get out of town. I got a job in Cocoa Beach, and I gave it everything I had. I mean, everything I had. And I lasted two weeks. And I went in there, so bombed out of my gourd one morning. And they said, you're fired. You're out of here. You're a drunk. You know, I was 30 years old. I was unemployable. You know, I mean, just completely shot. And had not been, you know, had not had, I'd only been drinking 15 years, you know. And I'd spent 15 years completely, just like the book 
Alcoholics Anonymous tells us. You know, I couldn't control my drinking and I can't leave it alone. Can't stop, can't leave it alone, you know. I uh, can't drink, can't not drink, can't drink, can't not drink, can't drink, can't not drink, can't drink, can't not drink. I'd wake up in the mornings, my first thought would be get the money, get loaded, get loaded, 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 get the money, get loaded, get loaded. I lived every day of the last three years. I spent three years on the streets that last three years, 27 years old to 30 years old, and I couldn't get arrested. I mean, I, I mean, I went. I had several hospital stays. I don't know how many hospital visits I had. I have a hazy memory of flashing blue lights or red lights. Somebody picking me up off the ground, my head busted open. Somebody taking me to hospital or police trying to straighten me out somehow. And when I got arrested, November the 13th, 1984, it was like, whew, you know, thank God, you know, because they're going to take me to jail, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to hurt anybody else. I'm not going to hurt anybody else, and I'm going to not hurt myself. And uh, jail was a step up from how I'd been living. And my standard of living improved. You know, they sleep between sheets in jail, you know. They give you a change of clothes. They, you eat three times a day. It's warm when it's cold outside, and it's cool when it's hot outside. You know, you have a toothbrush. You got all these wonderful things, you know. I... Uh, what happened to me was a guy came, a man came to the jail. You know, I'll tell you, that's exactly what happened. Man came to a jail. I, I was standing in the jail. I'd been to a few meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, one night they said AA meeting. I said, why would they have one of those here, you know? <laughs> Just clueless. And uh, I was really thinking that if I went to that meeting, that judge might hear about it and take it a little easy on me. And uh, what actually happened was I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got a brand new life. I got a brand new life, 30 years old. And life began for me, you know. And I didn't know all that madness that I went to. That was just me getting ready to be here with you, you know. The, uh, Jerry had never been in jail, the old guy that brought the meetings in. Jerry was, Jerry was a war hero. He'd been to Vietnam. He was a citizen. He could vote. Jerry was a man that wanted to bring a meeting to men or women that could not go and get a meeting for themselves. And Jerry came every Wednesday night, week after week after week after week after week. And I would go and I'd listen to Jerry, you know. And I didn't know if I was, I didn't know if I was an alcoholic or not, you know. I was something, you know. I was just, I was, op try I was developing an open mind, I guess. They shipped me over to the Orange County Jail to get some charges over there. I was really excited about that, you know. And I was over there, I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a man stood up, and he was speaking, telling his story, and as he spoke, he had the book Alcoholics Anonymous with him, and he would wave that book over his head as he spoke. And I saw that book. I said, my God, that's a big book, you know. <laughs> They'll never get me to read that big book. Anyway, uh, the next night, I went to the library. They said, anybody want to go to the library? 33rd Street. I take a jail in there at 6 o'clock on every Tuesday now. Went to the library, big room full of books. And uh, turned to the left, walked right up to the books, and right at the end of my nose was the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I took it. I don't even know why. I just picked it up and took it back to my cell. And I opened it up, and I really just, you know, the lights came on for me. I remember I, just, I didn't start at the front of the book. I, I think I started maybe in Chapter 3. 
But here's what I remember. I remember reading two paragraphs about a jaywalker. And I would read that, and I'd say, wait a minute. And I'd stop and read it again. I'd say, wait a minute. Stop and read it again. And I'd say, this is me. This is me. And I found myself in the pages of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I uh, continued reading through the book, and of course, you know, uh, I said, maybe there is something to this AA thing. I had a lot of problems. I had that bad food in jail problem. I had that bad lawyer problem. God, I had a bad lawyer. I met my lawyer. His pants were split from here all the way around back to here. He said, that happened when he got off the bus. <laughs> he was in worse shape than I was. <laughs> bad lawyer. I had a wife. I was married at the time. I was, you know, I was supporting a family, you know. I was married, you know, but uh, God, you know, I, where's she at? What's she doing? What's happening with her? Why isn't she visiting me? Why don't I get letters from her? What's, what's she doing, man? That's a real problem, you know. I had, that, uh, I had that inability to sleep problem. I had that withdrawal from alcohol thing going on. I had that sit up in bed straight in the middle of the night screaming out loud problem from thoughts and memories from the past. You know, the book Alcoholics Anonymous says that our dark past is the greatest possession we have. And I believe it. That our dark past, have the, God gives these things when we share them for the purpose of trying to help another alcoholic. That God empowers these things to do something that, that, that I don't guess anybody in the, else, in the world has that except 12-step people. You know, that we can share these experiences and they're valued here and they help other people. But uh, I was 30 years old. I'm reading the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I couldn't stop. I couldn't sleep at night because I couldn't stop thinking about memories. Like uh, when I was 27 years old and I'd just gotten out of the penitentiary, my mother took me in and gave me a place to live. And I have a sister that has mental problems. And she would become violent with my mother periodically. And uh, I, I remembered one afternoon I was laying in the, my bed. My mother was yelling for me, Lee, come and help. Your sister's being violent. Come and help. And I got out of bed. And my intentions were to get out of bed, walk through the kitchen, go into the living room, and help my mother with my sister that was being violent with her. And I got out of bed, and I walked into the kitchen. And when my mother was struggling with my sister, she did something that nobody did around a guy like me. She had dropped her purse into a chair. And when I saw that purse... That drink thing hit me. And instead of helping my mother, I took $20 out of her purse and her car keys, and I walked out through the garage and took her car, and I went out and got drunk. Now, when I came back at midnight, I walked through the front door. The room was covered with blood where my sister had taken a pistol and shot my mother in the face. I was not there 10 minutes when my grandfather and, my grand, and my, one of my uncles came in and told me that my mother was going to be okay. It was two days before they could take me to the hospital because I kept drinking. Now I'm 30 years old and I'm in a jail cell and I'm reading the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says in our book that if when you honestly want to, you find that you cannot quit entirely. Or when drinking, you have little control over the amount of alcohol that you drink. That you're probably an alcoholic. I want to tell you, that's the best news I've ever had. That's the best news I've ever received in my life. 
Because that meant that I wasn't the sorriest son that ever walked the face of this earth. It meant that I wasn't the lowest dog that ever lived. It meant that I was an alcoholic. I was not someone that would just walk out on his mother and leave her to be harmed. I was a young man and I was caught in the grip of an obsession greater than any human power could deliver me from. And when I got back with old Jerry that brought the meetings in, I had a whole new attitude about this thing. I said, Jerry, just please tell me what to do. 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 And Jerry said, Lee, I cannot tell you what to do. But I'll show you what I did. And he pointed me back to the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said that we had a program. He said, Lee, where you're going, there's not going to be 90 meetings in 90 days. You're going to have to have your program straight out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I look back at that today and I still, you know, I love the fellowship. I love you. There's no place in the world I'd rather be than with you and spend time with you. I love it this weekend. I'm happy we're together. I'm thrilled that we can be together and, and, and do this step study tomorrow and be together. But, in, but within the pages of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, that's the only plan of recovery that we have in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I look back at that today, and I still think that I got the best that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. When Jerry handed me that book and told me that if I do these things, that I, would, I could be a different guy, that I could change. You know, I take a meeting into the men's facility every Thursday night. We just discontinued that. We got thrown out of there. He wants to do something else. He, he's, he's, got, he's non-profit, and he's got these other obligations he has to meet to, like other kind of groups and stuff. So they got rid of the AA meeting. But I'm in that meeting. One, I, for a year, I said, we're going to talk about the first three steps every week. And any of you men that want to do the fourth step, you come up to me after the meeting. After a year, they were honest with me. And they said, Lee, we're tired of hearing you talk. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk. And I said, you know, I'm a mature adult. I said, well, go ahead. You know. <laughs> I said, well, what do you want to talk about? And I talked to the first guy. I said, what do you think you need to do? He said, this guy's right out of detox in that men's facility. He said, I'm going to have to change. And the next guy said, yeah, I'm going to have to change. If I'm ever going to make it, I'm going to have to be a different guy. Next guy said, I'm going to have to change. Next guy, I'm going to have to change. I need to change. I need to change. You know, I need to change, you know. If you're new and you're struggling with this not drinking thing, I'm going to tell you all about it right now. Here's the, the steps to not drinking. One, in order to not drink alcohol, you have to not drink alcohol. <laughs> That's a whole deal. The only plan for not drinking that we have here is don't drink. And if you want to stay that way, you may have to change. The other steps are for that. And my, you know, that's what they've helped me do anyway. They've helped me to be happy with not drinking. And in order to do that, I had to change. And I was so dumb that I did not realize that it was like a, a take it or leave it deal. I didn't know that I could say, no, I am not taking this program of recovery. I was dumb and I wanted to I wanted something to happen in my life. I wanted what Jerry had. I wanted to be an alcoholic in recovery. I didn't want to be the guy that I'd always been. 
And when they said, you'll have to take these steps, I did them. I sat down and started a four-step inventory. And uh, for you that might not have done that, that list, that's not a list of who you are. That's a list of who you aren't. The book says we're going to get rid of that. That's not who you were. That's never who you were. That's not who God made you to be. You know that? When God made you, he made you whole, clean, pure, sweet. You know, I've got a little baby. I've got a six-year-old daughter. Let me tell you this. When I hold her, I know that she is clean and pure and sweet. And I don't know what she's going to be like in ten years. You know? But, man, I'm telling you now that God made her complete, lacking nothing. You know, I've gone out and picked up some stuff that's unnecessary, a lot of old ideas. And, and now we've got a chance to get rid of them. Another good thing about going into men's facilities, especially in Florida, is we've we got all these lakes everywhere. And it's very common that I can be in the men's facility and I'll say, have any of you fellas ever dr driven a vehicle off into a great body of water, you know? And they'll sit there for a minute and there'll be two or three guys raise their hands, you know? <laughs> when they pull that vehicle out of that water, they recovered it. They get a recovery service to do that. That's recovery. But what good is it without a process of restoration? Until they take that vehicle apart piece by piece and then put it back together, it's not worth anything. So that's what we have an opportunity to do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. We can, with the help of this program, with the help of a power greater than ourselves, and the help of each other, we've got this network of people around us that want to help us, that want us to do good, you know? You know, instant, intimate relationships, if, available if we want them. We can change. We can do these things. I, uh, the book says that resentment is the number one offender. And I'm a guy that has absolutely, and I'm not like you, I'm a guy that has struggled with resentment. I'm a guy that has been up and down with these hard feelings like that, you know. And I've had to find solutions for that. And I believe the book Alcoholics Anonymous says that we're going to pray for people we resent. And uh, it also says that, uh, that they'll get us drunk quicker than anything else. It doesn't say alcohol gets us drunk. It says resentments, hating someone else. And uh, I'm such a, I guess, a real alcoholic that I've had to really implement that into my life. The, uh, and I'd like to tell you that I pray for people and I don't ever have another hard feeling ever again. It's gone. It's not like that. But the book says that if I'm praying for them, I'm not harboring that resentment. And if I'm not harboring that resentment, it's one that does not have to make me drink. And so I'm not harboring any resentment today. There's no one in my life that I'm disturbed with that I'm not praying for. And that's freedom. Freedom from hate. Right there, right in the fourth step. Freedom from hate, one day at a time. I'm a person, not like, maybe a lot of alcoholics like this, maybe some aren't, but I'm also an alcoholic that has been plagued with fear, terrified, and not even know it. Go straight to anger, you know? But, uh, and I've had to take action on that. You know, the book says that self-reliance has failed us. We have these fears because we're relying upon self. You know, that, that God, we can rely upon God for these things. My sponsor has guided me to uh, list, you know, if I have a fear and I have an inventory on fear, I write it down, and I've, I'm going to ask myself one, one or two questions. I'm asked both the questions, two questions. And is this out of today, and is this back in management? You know, nowhere in the book Alcoholics Anonymous does it say now you are restored to management. <laughs> it says you're restored to sanity, not management. 
So anyway, when I got out of prison that last time, I spent my first two years of sobriety in a maximum security penitentiary. We started a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got out, and uh, I was scared to death. They t the guys, some of the guys I knew took me straight to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, that was September the 12th, 1986. And uh, I, my first day out, I went to a meeting. And, uh, you know, I was scared to death, you know, at that meeting. I thought I had prison written across my forehead. And uh, some of the guys came, you know, I, I was, during the meeting, I said, I just got out of jail, you know. I thought they were going to say, what? Get out, you know. But the guy chairing the meeting said, we're glad you're here, and we're glad you're here. And if you really mean business, you've come to the right place, you know. And, but I went to see my parole officer, and uh, Mr. Goody. And uh, he set me down, he goes, let me tell you what you've got to look forward to here, and I'm going to help you accomplish this. You have $37,000 in restitution. You have 500 hours community service. You have 20 years probation. You have two years house arrest. How are you going to take care of this? I said, bub, 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 bub. he goes, when you come back next month, I want to hear a plan of how you're going to take care of this. I went back to the halfway house. I fell down on my knees. I said, God, 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 how am I going to do this? I was terrified, and I realized that I was out of today. And I said, wait a minute. What's wrong right now? What's wrong right now? Right now I have a place to live. Right now I've got some clothes. Right now I've got a job. Right now I've got friends here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Right now I'm going to a meeting. I know I'm going to get a meal. Right now everything is okay or everything is okay. I implemented that for 30 days and I went back to see Mr. Goody. And he had sent the order to the judge to uh, have it sent back and then start acting on it. Well, it came back from the judge and Mr. Goody was reading it and he goes, this is all wrong, this is all wrong. This just came back from the judge. And they've left that 500 hours of community service off. And look at this. Instead of $37,000, it says $3,700. When you come back next month, I want you to tell me how you're going to take care of that. I went and I implemented one day at a time for one month. I'm okay today. Everything's okay today. What can I do for another alcoholic today? Who's somebody I can reach out to today? You know? Things are going good for me today. I've got a place to live. I've got some clothes. I've got food. I've got a job. I'm going to AA meeting. Who else, who else needs that, you know? When I came back the next month, Mr. Goody was very frustrated. <laughs> he said, I can't explain this. I don't know what's wrong here. But until we figure this out, you just pay $30 a month. I said, okay, Mr. Goody. Now, I talked to my sponsor about that, and he says, you're going to have to go see that judge. And I called Judge Salfie. And I said, Judge Salfie, I'm, I'm still in Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's something wrong with the order, the, uh, the sentencing agreement that uh, you wrote up for me. There's something wrong with it. I'd like to come in and talk with you. And he let me come in his office, went in his chambers. He says, what's the problem? I said, I want to show you this, Mr. Judge Salfie. And he grabbed it up and looked at it and goes, let me see that. I said, uh, you sentenced me to 500 hours community service. He said, yeah, and I don't see that on here at all. Are you still going to those meetings? I said, yes. He goes, well, that'll do for that. I said, but the big problem is my fines. You sentenced me to $37,000 in fines, and it only says $3,700. He said, let me see that. He looked at that, and he goes, you're right. They've left a zero off. That's a clerk's error. Oh, forget about it. And when the judge says forget about it, you can forget about it. <laughs> you know? I went back to the halfway house. I got the big book, and I set it down on the table. Man, ooh, boy, ooh, man. You got to be careful with this program. Ooh, man. Man, this program works. Everybody had a sponsor. I looked around the room, everybody had a sponsor. I said, this is a popular thing to do. I wanted to be popular. So I asked this fellow named Butch to be my sponsor. And uh, 
Don't ever ask anybody named Butch to be your sponsor. You know? <laughs> Don't ever ask anybody named Butch or Killer to be your sponsor. Because, boy, that guy was something else. I went to him once. I thought he ought to loan me a little money. He told me to shut up. He said, get in there and sit down in the front row. That's where the stupid people sit. No offense. The, uh, another time I went to Butch, and I had all these complaints. And I wrote them down. I said, I'm going to write my complaints down. I'll share them with Butch. And I went to Butch, and he was talking to somebody at the meeting. I disturbed him, you know, when he was talking to this guy. And I said, look at this Butch. I've done a lot of work. I said, I don't like this, and I don't like this, and this stinks, and this is awful, and this is crap, and this is all. You know, what do you think about that? And he goes, wow, you're not very happy with what you have here. I said, no, uh, no, I'm not happy with this at all. He said, well, why don't you just go get drunk and see how you like that? I said, I don't want to get drunk. He said, well, if you're not happy with what you have here, you're probably going to get drunk. So I got happy. <laughs> I said, boy, maybe this stuff isn't as bad as I thought. And for me, gratitude is the hinge on which the gate of sobriety swings. I've never seen a grateful alcoholic get drunk. And never have I ever seen a person fail that thoroughly enjoyed this path. And boy, what a path do we have here in Alcoholics Anonymous. You could never ex have explained to me what I was going to find when I came in here to be with you. You know, I didn't know if I wanted what you had. All I knew is I didn't want what I had. September the 12th, 1986, I was released from penitentiary for what I know can be the last time. And there was a time in my life when I could sit in front of a can of beer and I'd think, when I open that beer, I'm going back to jail. And then I'd open it. Powerlessness over alcohol is not simply, if I drink, I'm going to get drunk. Powerlessness over alcohol is, I will most definitely drink. I will drink. And it is here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have found a power greater than myself. March the 30th, 1992, Division of Pardons and Paroles uh, released me off a of paper 15 and a half years early. That's after having spent 17 and a half years of my life in the correction system. Inside or on some kind of paper waiting to go back, knowing I was going to go back, knowing that was going to be my life. And I brought nothing here with me that could have produced that for me. You know, I came here with a shoebox, you know, with some letters and some pencils, one change of socks and one change of underwear. But everything in life that I needed to have a different kind of life met me at that door when I came in here to be with you. Uh, I had 11 jobs the first 18 months that I was out. I wasn't any better at that sober than I was drunk. <laughs> Every job I had had one thing wrong with it. They wanted me to work, you know. <laughs> I was having a terrible time. Work fascinated me. I could watch it for hours, you know. <laughs> you know, you go to jail, they give you a job you don't want that you can't quit. You know, and you spend all your time working to get out of work. And that's really, I guess, all I knew about work, man. Where do you hide? Where's the bathroom, you know? Where do you go that they can't find you? And uh, I was having a bad, bad time with that. And I'd go to the meetings. These old-timers, they weren't making it any easier. You know, I'd dress up. I knew there'd be some ladies at the meeting, you know. And I'd come and stand at the front door waiting to go in to make my entrance into the AA meeting. And some old-timer would yell out, have you got a job, you know? And it was very humiliating. The, uh, and I'd say, I'm going to get a job, you know. Get a job. But I was going into the jail one afternoon, and a guy was walking out of the jail. And he said, well, you could work where I work. Here's this guy's number. Call him tomorrow. You can work where I work. And I said, yeah, I'll call him. And I went to my meeting later that night, and they said, did you get a job? I said, I'm going to call this guy tomorrow. Maybe I'll get this job. Get a job, you know. 
And so the next morning I got up and I called this guy and said, he goes, yes, we need some people immediately. Come down here tomorrow. Bring your resume. Click. I thought, resume? My God. You know, <laughs> what am I going to put on some kind of resume? State prison, state prison, state prison. You know, I can't do that. You know, and I went to my meeting that night and the guy, they said, did you get that job? Did you call that guy? I said, I called him. Big mistake, you know. They wanted a resume. And they said, well, we think you ought to go down there and talk to that guy. We think you ought to go down there and tell him the truth. I said, my God, that's the worst thing I could do, you know. They put it to me like this. We're not even going to bother with you anymore if you're not willing to go down there. I went back to the place I was living. I got down on my knees. I was praying, God, 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 you know. <laughs> this is bad, you know. <laughs> There's nobody that, to even go with me. Everybody else has got a job, you know. And... Uh, I said, I'm going to have to go by myself. I said, no, I'm not. I said, if I go, if I got to go, you got to go. If I go, you're going. You're going with me. And I got up the next morning. I said, okay, God, we're going down to this place. We're not going to be there very long. <laughs> Walked into that guy's office. He had a phone in each hand trying to talk on those phones. Hung them up. Said, sit down over there. I sat down. He goes, where's your resume? I said, I don't have a resume. He said, well, uh, no big deal. Do you have any experience in sales? And the moment he said that, it's like a light went off in my mind. And I said, well, yeah. I've sold microwaves and stereos and <laughs> jewelry and guns and boats and cars and furniture and jewelry and musical instruments, lawn equipment, anything anybody's got on their front porch. He goes, wow, you got a lot of experience. <clears throat> Think I'd get you a start tomorrow? I said, yeah, man, I sold that guy's product like popcorn. You didn't have to sneak down the alley with it or keep it covered up under a blanket or hide it in the trunk of your car. <laughs> you just walk up to anybody, you know? And I don't think God minds it at all that we have a little something and do pretty good here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I take God with me everywhere I go today. I'd rather walk in the dark with God than walk alone in the light. It is better to walk with God by faith than walk alone by sight. Listen to this. I become a regular guy. I have a job. I have a car. I have clothes. I live somewhere, you know. I, mean, I went back to school and got an education. I was down at the intergroup office one day, and they said, would you like to be on the service committee? I said, yeah, man. And I, I was on the service committee for intergroup. And after a year on the service committee, I said, this is important. I must be important, you know. This is valuable what I'm doing. I have value, you know. I felt so, AA was working. I felt so good about myself. I said, I, I could go to school. I, could, I can do things. I went back to school and got an education. I was in a meeting early one morning once. And, uh, you know, there was a girl sharing, and she just got out of nursing school, and she said, I love being a nurse, and being a nurse is so exciting, and I just can't wait to go to work every day and be a nurse. And, and sometimes I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm so excited about going to work and being a nurse and going to work and being a nurse, I just lay there, and I can't go back to sleep. I went, God, <laughs> you know, I don't feel that way at all, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was grateful to have a job. I was grateful to uh, provision, to be able to buy tires, you know, pay the rent. But, you know, I, I said, God, I was praying. I said, God, isn't, what's, what, isn't there anything out there for me? I mean, if maybe there's something I could do that could be helpful, that, that would help people, or uh, something that for me, you know, to do. And I was praying about it. And early, in another meeting, I heard a guy once, he said, you take care of God's business, God will take care of your business. 
And I said, that's, what, that's it, that's it. I'm going to get busy in AA. I'm going to take care of God's business. I'm going I'm to get a job in AA, and when I finish that job in AA, I'm going to get another job in AA. I'm going to keep a job in AA, and I'm going to sponsor guys. I'm going I'm to be the first one to walk over the new guy. New guy. I'm going to give him my phone number. I'm going to get his phone number. And I'm going I'm to sponsor guys. I'll sponsor all of them. I'll sponsor guys with blonde hair. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> and my experience is, if you take care of God's business, God will give you a business because he did that for me. And I love what I do today. I love what I do. What I do puts me in the best places in the world with the best people in the world. Sometimes I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and I'm so excited about getting up and going to work that I just lay there. <laughs> and it's good. It's good. God is good. And God has been real, 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 real good to me. After my sobriety, the greatest blessing that I have in my life today is my six-year-old daughter, Hannah. Now, you know where I came from. And I can have something that wonderful. I can have something like, what would God withhold? What would God withhold from any of us if I can have something like that? God has good things for us. He has good things for us. We just have to work this program and be vigilant with this program. That's, all. That's the only thing I did. I, tried to do, I did my best here. And boom, just a wonderful, fantastic life was given me. And uh, she, she teaches me so much as a constant lesson. You know, so I can be laying on the couch, and she'll be watching Barney, you know, or the Pooh or something like that. She'll come over to me, and she'll climb up on the couch and take my arm and put it around her. And she just wants me to hold her. She just wants to be close to me, you know. She wants, she wants me to, you know, I'm, and I am filled with joy. I am filled with joy that my baby wants me to hold her and be close to her. You know, sometimes I think, how much more, how much more, does our Heavenly Father, would our Heavenly Father experience joy when we spend time with Him? You know, sometimes I lay down in bed at night and I say, God, I don't have anything to say at all. I just want you to hold me. I just want to be close to you. You know, God initiates every prayer. You ever had the thought of prayer? It comes from Him. It doesn't come from us. When my child was a month before her uh, fourth birthday, I had her, I love to talk about her. I can't bring her to these meetings because she'll stand right in front of me and say, tell them about me, tell them about me, tell them about me. <laughs> I can't even talk, I have to take her outside. David's seen that happen. The, uh, but she loves Cliff. Cliff is her favorite speaker because my daughter likes to have fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> She's trying to get here Saturday night. The... Uh, but we were riding around, and she was in her little baby car seat back there, and I had 10 soft-cover big books back there, and she reached over and grabbed one of those soft-cover big books and said, Daddy, read me this Bible. I said, well, open it up, you know, and she knew her numbers. And she said, one, page one. I said, on page one of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that God cares about alcoholics. She laughed. She said, two, read me two. I said, on page two of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that God cares about alcoholics. She laughed. She said, read me three. I said, on page three of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, 
It says that God cares about alcoholics. I said, you read me four. She looked down, she looked back up, she said, says God cares. <laughs> I said, read me five, you know. She said, it says God cares. I said, turn the page, read me six. She said, it says God cares. And by the time we got to Chick-fil-A, my little baby had read half the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> we have a book. We have a book that, that nothing more in this world, there's no stronger evidence in this world of how much God loves us than that book. He gave it to us. He gave us a way out. I didn't deserve it. I mean, when I came to you, I was the ugliest I'd ever been in my life. I deserved it. I deserved some, any, nothing good. I deserved nothing. I, I, I had nothing to offer. And you moved over and said, we've got a seat that fits you. Just for you. My God, man. That's unconditional love. My little daughter, she'll play this game today. You ever see a, somebody take a flower and go, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You know how you play that with God? He loves me. 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 That's the whole deal. I, uh, I got serious with the ninth step. I, uh, I want to tell you that you know, I, I, uh, I made my last amends on my original ninth step list the September before last in Little Rock. And uh, that night I went to the Rose City Group and saw Mary Pearl and announced that I'd just made my last amend on my original knife step, you know, A-step list. Mary Pearl goes, big nod, you know, I just, you know, I love her. But uh, before I was halfway through, amazing and wonderful things were happening for me. You know, just amazing. You know, I was 10 years old where I went to Little Rock. I thought I ought to go to the police station and say something to them. You know, I was caused those guys a lot of trouble. I better go over there and say something to them. And I walked in. I said, you know, I see you police officers a lot different today than I used to. And, and now I, I like what you do. And I, I, I would do anything to help you. And, and I respect you. And, uh, but I wasn't always that way. And I, I used to cause a lot of trouble. But I'm not that way anymore. And I thank you for serving us and helping us. He said, what did you say your name was? <laughs> he said, we have a warrant for your arrest. I said, my God, I hadn't been here in 10 years. He said, this warrant is 9 years and 11 months old. I said, I got people waiting for me in the car. <laughs> now, he called that officer, Mark Stafford, whose name was on that warrant, and got, he got him on the phone right there. And uh, Mark, he said he, he said, he wants to talk to you and hand me the phone. He, I said, yes. He goes, we know all about you. We know what you've been doing. We've kept in touch with people that know about you. And we know you're a different guy. And tomorrow I'm going to go before a judge, and we're going to have that warrant dropped. And I said, well, thank you. And the next day I called him to make sure he dropped that warrant. You know? <laughs> I, uh, I talked earlier about my mother. What do you do about something like that, you know? You know, my experience with the ninth step is we're responsible for what is humanly possible. I am responsible for what I can go and do. And then God is responsible for the rest. And when I got serious with doing what I could do, God was very, very, very busy doing what I could not do. I have a, I have a, I have a, 
I talk to my mother every day. I talk to my mother every single day. The uh, no guilt, no guilt, complete freedom from guilt. I a uh, couple that same time I saw Mary Pearl that same week I was in Little Rock. I, I went to my mother's home, and I uh, I put 44 gallons of paint on her house, tore out the front porch and put in another front porch, painted the interior, hauled off two 30-yard dumpsters of just junk, you know, that was there. Uh, no guilt just because I love my mother and I wanted to do something for her. A few months after that, I called my mother one day and I said, Mother, you remember that night that, that you know, Glenda shot you? She stopped me. She said, Oh, yes, Lee, I think about it sometimes. I think about how horrible it must have been for you when you came in and saw all that blood. That's my mother's perception. That is not how I saw that. That is my mother's perception. You know, but something I could have carried with me all my life. She never had a thought of anything other than, is Lee okay? How's Lee? Is he doing all right? Hey, who's watching him? Who's helping him? Is he eating? You know? Wholeness. I was watching TV. You see a lot of spiritual stuff on TV. You got to look real hard. I was watching TV one day. It was a used car, car dealer. He said, have I got a deal for you? Drag it in, tow it in, push it in, pull it in. Get it down here, because we're going to give you something more than it's worth. I said, man, that sounds a whole lot like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. <laughs> Bring us your shame. Bring us your guilt. Bring us your sorrow and your loss. Bring us your broken dreams and your broken heart. Because we're going to give you something more than it's worth. Sobriety. More than the simple elimination of alcohol. Wholeness. Soundness. A reordered life. A new life. Freshness. A, re a new freedom. That's what you can have. That's what we can have when we apply ourselves to this program. I'm going to close with a story. It's one that really helped me a lot with this higher power thing. It's a true story. In 1989, a father walked his son to school in Armenia. And after leaving his son at the steps of the school that morning, he walked several blocks to where he was working. Now that day in Armenia, they had an earthquake. And uh, they do not build buildings in Armenia the way they build them out in California. They build them out of rock and stone and brick. And that city was absolutely destroyed. And that father miraculously drug himself out of the rubble of that building, started running those blocks, you know, where that school had been, past fires, people screaming, you know, and emergency vehicles, and got to the steps of the school. It was just a pile of stone. And he ran to the top of the pile and just started throwing rocks and throwing bricks and, and screaming out his son's name, Armand, 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 Armand. And people would come to him and say, let us help you. You're hurt. You're bleeding. Let us bandage you. And he'd say, help me find my son. Help me find my son. Help me find my son. And they, they, they'd say, we can't help him. He's delirious. And they'd go help somebody else. 36 hours later, he was still there throwing rocks and throwing bricks. After 36 hours, he heard something. He said, Armand, is it you? He heard, yes, Father, it's me. He said, son, are you all right? He heard, yes, father, I'm all right. There are 13 of us in here. I told them that if my father is alive, he will not rest until he saves me. 
And after he helps me, he'll help you too. You new people, I've got real good news. Here in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a father. In the, in the fifth chapter, Bill Wilson wrote, He is the father. We are his children. In the closing of Dr. Bob's story, Dr. Bob wrote, Your heavenly father will never let you down. Here in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you have a heavenly spiritual father who will not rest until he saves you. He will not rest until he reaches you. And after he helps you, he's going to use you to help somebody else. I love you. I'm looking forward to a great weekend. And thank you for helping me stay sober today.